please note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We get- yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. This week's episode is a real doozy, a, a long one, and one that fans of the LEGO Group and its many toys have been clamoring for since we started recording these episodes, right, Brian? Yeah, that's right. This week, we tackle the fascinating, strange history of LEGO Bionicle from its early ideation as Boneheads of Voodoo Island, which was a creation inspired by an artist's personal struggles with a brain tumor, to the eventual death and ill-fated relaunch of the incredibly popular popular toy. And through it all were, of course, the video games. Yes, the video games play an intriguing role in the history of Bionicle. Because the toys were conceived as a transmedia product, you know, something meant to live in books, movies, websites, comics, and video games, digital play was an important aspect of the toy line. And of course, there's the mystery of the lost Bionicle game, how it was resurrected from the dead and why fans are now working on their own take on a Bionicle video game. Now, it's important we note here that this isn't meant to be a deep dive into all seven of the original Bionicle video games or the two created for second generation Bionicle. Instead, we've decided to focus specifically on the first game developed for consoles, Lego Bionicle Quest for the Toa, and its never officially released sequel, Lego Bionicle, The Legend of Matanui. Like we said, there's a lot here, so buckle up and get ready for a heck of a ride. To understand Lego Bionicle, you need to understand the fertile creative ground from which it sprouted, the state of the world, and perhaps most importantly, the state of the Lego Group in the late 90s and early 2000s. Signs of what would become the Lego Group financial crisis first appeared in the early 90s when profits began to slow. The initial reaction was to retire a core group of Lego designers and replace them with 30 innovators. That shift in designers eventually spread to a shift in designs, and by the late 90s, LEGO sets were distinctly different and one fans didn't necessarily like. In 1998, the LEGO group had its first loss, eventually laying off a thousand employees. The following year, the LEGO group introduced sets based on licensed properties, including Star Wars, a theme set that would go on to fuel massive growth in the LEGO group profits. The success of licensed properties underscored the value of backstory for the company, and so it started to explore the idea of creating its own properties, working with, 
among others, Copenhagen Advertising Agency Advance and one of its art directors, Christian Faber. The agency had been involved also with legal projects for uh, years and years. And that gives you sort of a long stretch of uh, content and a long stretch of uh, issues. And in some way, that plays a big role in the way we solve different challenges. Christian said that there were a few very important moments that led to the creation of Lego Bionicle. A key one was the 90s and the seismic shift the Lego group was going through during that decade. People were starting to doubt that this was where the future was sort of heading when it comes to toys and games and everything. It was almost like there were so many threats through the 90s and the early 90s. It was a sort of emerging game market that was really difficult for the Lego group to get into in the beginning. Then there was the big opening of the production of toys in China, and they flooded the market. On top of that, the last of the Lego group's basic patents had expired in 1989, opening the door for competitors. This, of course, had a big impact on the company and its way of thinking internally, Christian said. So there was just so many things that was uh, threatening the Lego group, yeah, the, <laughs> the future. And uh, we were feeling this in all the things we were doing. We were feeling it when we visited Billund and talked to colleagues and talked about creative stuff. So that said, the stuff that uh, we were looking into in the mid-90s was sort of the innovative things we were doing were pointing towards how do we solve this problem. We need to get the Lego break into the schoolyard. We need to make it cool. We need to make a lot of new uh, suggestions or, or stories or so for you to play with when you bought a box of Lego bricks. And all this came together in, in different initiatives. I remember one in 95, uh, it's called Cybots. It's actually my first attempt to look at a buildable action figure. I was doing a lot of Lego techniques at the time, building uh, cars and planes and uh, mechanical stuff. And a certain uh, idea popped up that uh, why not build a sort of a character or a human or something that has sort of a torso and two arms and two legs and a head. Um, but we didn't have the system to do it. We needed uh, the connection point that would make this a simple build. The group tested out doing a ball joint at one point, something that would become a key component of Bionicle Toys. The design was used in the Technic-themed Slicer Throwbot set, which Christian said was his first attempt at creating a buildable action figure. The idea was to put it in a can or a canister so it was easy portable. It should be cheap to buy. It should be easy buildable, almost without a building instruction. And it should be at a price where kids could buy it with their own pocket money. That was a market the legal group really wanted to hit. And then the whole idea of making it sort of new and have a new sort of look and a new design feel that would make the toy store move this display out into the front of the store, which was really an advantage because you would pick it up as you were at the register and so on. Right. So so this was like an, an impulse purchase idea. Yeah, exactly. And and that was, uh, it was actually working really well. It was a launch that almost sold itself. That was not a big campaign. Planet Slicer, seven continents, one battle arriving 1st February 1999. The Slicer sets, which hit in early 1999, also introduced the concept of having elemental characters that would have distinct abilities, a sort of table setter for an idea that would come back in full force with the later release of Bionicle. However, support for the Slicer Throwbot sets was short-lived, 
overshadowed by the sudden and tremendous success of the Star Wars-themed Lego sets. And around the same time the Star Wars sets hit, the Lego group released another non-traditional theme set, the short-lived Technic-themed Roboriders. The next year, we were supposed to do an, another sort of craze product, as they call it, and you had this uh, the Roboriders, uh, which was sort of a a bit strange because we had just nailed the one with the character and it was really popular and then okay let's do a vehicle that's a character quick to build action-packed functions and great shooting they come in cans with secret codes to games on the internet robo riders that's a big mix when you have something that's really working so in in year three of these uh, small products we suggested that we would have this long story it would actually be played out as if there was a, a movie, like a Star Wars-like epic film. But we didn't have a film, so we just did it as if there was one. And we created frames out of the film that wasn't there. <laughs> it, it, was, it was really an attempt to try to, um, to use all the tricks in the book from the big movie, but actually do like a small, uh, really active uh, launch. You know, when we've been working with the Lego group for all the years, Having other franchises to be part of that was actually a dream we had for many years because imagine that we had sort of the whole story already out there and we could just do the, the models and so on. Lego and Star Wars join forces for the first time so you can build authentic Lego. Christian said that the success of Lego Star Wars and the need to come up with a successor to Robo Riders, released in 2000, led to an entirely new concept. When we were sitting with the concept of this next thing that should follow after uh, Robo Riders, uh, we were thinking, okay, what if we had a story that was just as big as Star Wars with just as much uh, content and we were launching that or we were launching a teaser for that maybe. We were thinking about Bionicle like that. And then, of course, it had a great effect uh, that the Lego group saw the effect of storytelling. We actually called it at that point, we call it story selling. <laughs> because it's actually taking all the sort of uh, positive things from a coherent story with all the characters and turning it into a sales argument, but also a collecting. Uh, you get the sense that this is going to continue into next year and next year. So that's really a good idea in getting in early and so on. I think Bionicle had a lot of energy coming from the Star Wars launch. With the idea of creating a theme set built around a strong narrative that could last for years, the team set about coming up with what the toys would look like and what the story would be about. Here, Christian Faber again explaining. Slicer was really different from anything the Lego group had done before, and then Robo Riders was really different from Slicer, and then something had to come up that was really different from Robo Riders and Slicer. <laughs> so it was almost like hunting the next big thing and so on. But actually going back to the character build and actually making it much more like a humanoid where you could actually say, well, there's a torso, there's uh, legs and arms and a head instead of trying to do creatures and so on. I think that was really, we haven't tried that out yet sort of in a coherent way. So, so that was next on the list. A major inspiration for Bionicle's original concept came from a deeply personal part of Christian Faber's life. Back in 1986, when he was hired to work at the agency, he also discovered he had a benign brain tumor. He said he spent the next decade or so taking medication to treat the mass. Unfortunately, the treatment came with a lot of side effects. I had sort of 10 years with the morning sickness, 
which is really strange uh, when I'm mentioning it now. But it, that was that was a quite strange period from from your 20 to your 30 to have a sort of nausea every morning because of this medicine. But I, I was like, okay, I have to fight this. I have to get this uh, tumor to not grow and so on. But at the same time, I was thinking about this medicine I was taking as small uh, sort of soldiers that was going into my body to locate uh, this place that was not right and then fighting it. So that was sort of the story building inside uh, my imagination long before Bionicle. And when I saw the packaging from uh, from the design department, which was like a canister, it just clicked and reminded me of the, of the capsules of I had been eating for 10 years and sort of say, okay, why not make these actually like heroes that need to come to this island and solve an issue uh, for the locals there? And maybe, ooh, maybe there's connection there. Why not put something big underneath the island that nobody knows about? I love this thing of storytelling where you are, where you're sort of dissolving the, the sense of scale. But just to say that that part of the story came from, uh, you know, my life with this struggling, this illness. So that fit uh, very well to the, this Lego situation. So it was Christian's struggle with his illness that lent itself to the central story of what would become Bionicle. In talking to us, he also mentioned that he was inspired by the television show Survivor, which was popular at the time. It was a show that had people dropped onto an isolated island struggling to survive. Originally, the Southern Ocean-themed toys were going to feature heads that would pop off of the figures when they were hit in the stomach. But Christian said that the concept tested poorly, so they needed to change it. Kids, it turned out, were worried about losing the heads. So instead, the characters were given tiki-like masks to wear, which could be collected. So suddenly we had this ecosystem of some heroes arriving that don't know what they have to do, but have to find out the truth about everything. This is Christian Faber speaking. And then you have these islanders that are telling them what they know, but that's not the truth. So it becomes this sort of epic battle between uh, what you know and what you uh, what you don't know, and also between good and bad in biology, because we have always been struggling with the Lego system that you have to break stuff down to build something new. And when you look at biology, that's how things work. So it's actually becoming something that you can play with, that you both have a like a dark side, breaking things down, but it's actually a good side because it's it's giving you stuff to build something new. And that whole notion also became the logo, you know, the the almost yin and yang logo of the of the Bionicle, because that that's the thing that everything is in a in a circle or a spiral when it comes to evolution. Also, when it comes to robots, I think. <laughs> Uh, that sort of fits into this uh, sort of legend. While the look of the humanoid toys and the basic story were coming together, the name still hadn't been nailed down. Instead, the theme was called Boneheads of the Voodoo Island. I was looking at the Star Wars logo and looking at the name and saying, whoa, how do you make something as big as Star Wars? You have Star, which is far away, and then you have War, which is the most dramatic. So I knew we had to do a word that was beyond sort of the known stuff. We were thinking of uh, Bionites. That was a name that was up. We also had both Before Man and After Man, which was a bit dramatic, but also leading to the thing that the robots, what, what will their role be in the future? Or maybe what was the role of them in the past if something came before? So all those ideas came into how do we do this big legend that really has a lot of baggage that we could dig into. So the name needed to be something that was not ordinary, so Bionicle came out of Biological Chronicle, which 
basically the whole thing is it's a chronicle about biology uh, and the way biology sort of breaks things down to build something new and so on. So I remember suggesting the name at a meeting and uh, having sort of drawn it uh, on a piece of paper and and not thinking, you know, I was thinking this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a big fight, but I still believe that that is something that we can actually make into into something new because nobody knows what this is and that's actually an advantage I think. But the the strange thing was in the meeting that everybody just liked it. It was like that sounds amazing and you know I remember after the meeting, I went up and and I bought the the dot com, Bionicle.com, I bought on my credit card because I, I thought I might as well lock this. <laughs> Once the core ideas were locked down, the idea was passed from the advertising agency to the Lego group, who then sent out the pitch to a bunch of writers in hopes of finding some who could help fill out the backstory, the history, and set the tone for the narratively driven toy set. Christian said his group put together a pitch deck featuring a short description, breaking down the backstory, and including a lot of pencil drawings. The LEGO group's Bob Thompson then combined them with myriad other pitches and sent them out to writers. Alistair Swinnerton said he was running a script writing company at the time when a book of pitches came through from the LEGO group. They were a bunch of one-pagers, but Bionicle's pitch was three pages long. So he took that book and went down to the local pub with his team of writers to look them over. We literally went down the pub and shared them out. This thing that at that time was called Boneheads of Voodoo Island, a title that we had to keep secret for many years. Well, it had a sort of Easter Island feel to it. It was one of my pet subjects was Easter Island. So I was very into the whole Polynesian mythology and I thought I could bring some of that to it. So I rewrote what had been written and sent it back. I can't remember to this day how much of Boneheads remained and how much was mine. Uh, it, it, was, it was that, really. So we went from there. You know, it was these, a bunch of characters who were on an island, not quite sure why they were there. And at that time, they were called names like Hook and Claw and what have you. I, I sort of Polynesianized all the names and, and created these heroes, um, initially four heroes who were the classic earth, air, fire, and water. And this this sort of appealed. So I, I developed it further and, and gave it the bones of a, a new story and passed it backwards and forwards over oh, a few months, about six months in the end, I think, before I actually ended up in Billund. That meeting in Billund happened in February of 2000. Alistair said that he and his business partner, Ken Anderson, were invited to discuss how to proceed with the story. Christian Faber from the ad agency Advance was there, as well as Eric Kramer, who would later become the product manager and marketing director for Bionicle. Alistair explains. But it turns out that that they hadn't actually seen anything that I'd written. So I find myself in front of a whiteboard, re-pitching the whole thing at the room, which was a little scary, to say the least with Christian at, at the back with an early prototype of one of the Bionicle figures, which I still have. And it was only when I got onto the whole Polynesian aspect of it that Eric Kramer's eyes particularly lit up. And I remember him saying something about them always wanting to find something that could help them break the Southeast Asia market, and he thought maybe this was it. Alistair ended up landing the deal, and a few months later, Christian christened the new set. Bionicle. 
Alistair wrote what he said was a typical story Bible, like you would for a television series or a movie franchise. The Lego group actually told Alistair to write it as if it were a movie, even though there were no plans for one at the time. In Bionicle's case, we started with the world um, and what it was and why it was. And I came up with the idea that this island was actually the, the face of a crashed planetary evacuation robot. Somewhere, I don't have it, any, I don't have the original Bible anymore, I wish I did. Somewhere in that first Bible, there is a, a, a little pen drawing that I, I did called Al's Rubbish Sketch of, of this robot lying down with its head above the water and its knees above the water. We created that first, and then these characters, um, the four heroes, initially it was four heroes, it became six, and what were initially called Turaga, and why they were there, what their mission was, and what the end result would be. At that point, we weren't looking beyond the first release. Um, We didn't, at that point, have... Um, a 20-year end game in, in, in mind. I mean, that came along fairly quickly afterwards. As soon as it became obvious that it was going to be big, that process started in earnest. In the time before time, on the mysterious island of Mata Nui, six canisters washed ashore on a golden beach, and new and powerful legends were born. They battled the darkness of evil Makuta and the terrible menaces he unleashed. Early on, Alistair ran into a pretty major issue. The concept for Bionicle relied on the fact that there would be an inherent battle between good and evil, but the Lego group just didn't do violence. Actually, Bob coined the phrase with smart, heroic thinking, which still to this day is one of the great phrases of all time. Alistair is talking about Bob Thompson, who helped create the story of Bionicle. I said, look, this is Terminator 2 where Arnie isn't allowed to kill anybody, but um, but he can incapacitate them. So the idea was that you know, your characters can't directly hurt another character, but they can fire at a rock that's above the character, which then drops on top of them. That, that was a very simplistic example. Um, so, yes, that <laughs> came from Terminator 2. You have to understand Lego Group had not done anything like this before. So we were charting new waters very much and working things out as we went along. Obviously, once it did start becoming um, the success that it did become, then these things got easier, um, and we got more leeway on that front. But no, I mean, the the Lego Group's um, philosophical ethos was absolutely always front and center, and to be very much respected. Alistair said the Lego group had a very specific target in mind when it pushed to create what would become Bionicle, Pokemon. Well, it was the biggest global toy sensation in 97, certainly 98. And our goal was to be bigger than Pokemon. And in order to do that, you had to understand why Pokemon was so big, um, what it was that appealed to the kids who were buying this stuff. It was the, the whole gotta collect them all thing, you know, the the set building, which obviously fed right into the Lego group ethos. We knew we had that, particularly with the masks. So we we definitely fed off the success of Pokemon um, in order to not replicate it, but try and do it better. And I, I think we did ultimately. 
Lego Bionicle had a limited launch in late 2000 and then went global on July 1st, 2001. Designed to be a transmedia product, the toy line was enhanced with a regularly updated interactive website, a run of comics that hit during the launch window, and plans for two video games. Lego Bionicle Quest for the Toa, aimed for a fall 2001 release on the Game Boy Advance, and Lego Bionicle The Legend of Matanui was planned for a release right after on Windows PC and potentially the GameCube. The games were being simultaneously developed by game studio Sapphire. One launched on time, but the other was killed off, despite being designed to tell the second half of a single cohesive story. Sapphire was founded in 1993 by Les Perdue and Charles Moore. In its early years, the studio worked on an eclectic mix of games from James Bond 007 for the Game Boy and StarCraft Brood War on Windows PC to Billy Bob's Huntin' and Fishin' for the Game Boy Color, as well as the game Animaniacs Ten Pin Alley. Sapphire president Hal Rushton said Nintendo recommended the studio to the LEGO Group in early 2000, helping them land a deal to produce not one, but two Bionicle games. Jeff James, who was the producer on the games for the LEGO Group, said he visited with and emailed a number of potential developers as they tried to pin down who should work on the games. Among the people and studios they chatted with were Ken Levine at Irrational Games, Human Head Studios, and Epic Games' Cliff Blazinski and Tim Sweeney. But ultimately, they settled on Sapphire because of the pre-existing relationship with Nintendo and the company's recommendation. I think, you know, kind of from the outset, we, we really wanted to share the Bionicle story across multiple formats. Here, former producer Jeff James speaking. The original idea for both games is that they would be connected. So the Game Boy Advance game would serve as a prequel to the PC game. And so I worked very closely with other folks within the uh, Lego Bionicle team. Specifically, I worked quite a bit with Greg Farshti, who authored a lot of Bionicle books. I believe he was doing the, the Bionicle comics at the time. And I worked closely with Greg to make sure that the PC game script, when the, the Toa met each other, there was some uh, dialogue that passed between them, and we wanted to make sure that that dialogue kind of reflected the personalities of the Toa as Greg had kind of expressed them in the comic. And I think going into this, we were looking at Bionicle as being for a bit older audience. And you know, if you look at, I remember looking at some of the key early visuals for Bionicle and some of the early treatments, and they were just you know very breathtaking. It reminded me of um, I think it was the Roger Dean artwork. You know, very futuristic, very sci-fi, and um, really having a strong kind of an adventurous vibe to it. And that kind of led us to, in terms of concepts, when we were talking about the types of game, you know, we wanted Bionicle to be, you know, we settled on having, um, you know, a 3D action adventure, you know, not unlike what you'd see with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, you know, kind of that format, you know, that's kind of the direction we went. The original pitch for the games was just a couple of pages, Jeff said. That pitch came with the story bible created by Alistair and some of the other interactive pieces, like what was being done on the website and in comics. The Game Boy Advance game focused on a Matora named Takua, who, through his adventures, you know, at the end of the game, he basically summons the Toa to the island. So at the start of the PC game, the, the Toa are kind of falling into the ocean around the island of Matanui. And uh, Toa Nua washes up on shore, called by the uh, the signal that 
that Takua had activated, you know, at the end of of the Game Boy Advance game, and that's how things kind of kicked off. So, so that whole integrated, you know, going from one game to the next, we thought at the time was, you know, was kind of a novel approach, and it also tied in with a lot of the other media, you know, the website and the comics and everything else. We tried to um, have a lot of integration there story-wise. Christian Faber also met with the team at Sapphire a couple of times to give them a sense of the big picture of the world and the depth of the narrative. We thought of this story as a big tube. You were, you were traveling down this big tube. And if you, uh, remember, if you imagine different uh, products or stories that were sort of traveling alongside, but they didn't have to follow exactly the same route, but they were pushing the whole story forward at sort of one level in some way. It's almost like this, the story creates this funnel and then you have different uh, sort of uh, directions inside or you're moving in the same direction, but you have different uh, tracks you're, you're following. And we always try to sort of make them meet at certain points where we could do great uh, connections between the game and something that would happen in the campaign. We could have characters that met up at different points. And just to say, this is maybe how everybody does it now. But at that time, we were sort of feeling, okay, we, we need some kind of system here. Development on the Game Boy Advance was led by Jay Ward, while development on the PC game was led by Dan Hilton. It was key that the two teams work closely together, Jeff said, to ensure that the shared storyline which threaded between the games made sense. To make that level of narrative complexity a bit more difficult to deal with, both games also had a very aggressive release schedule, with the teams getting a bit more than a year to finish. That's kind of a tough schedule to operate under. Here, Jeff James speaking. But I know that the developer and on our end, you know, we worked as hard as we could to try to make that a reality. And, you know, thankfully it worked out on the on the Game Boy Advance side, but unfortunately it didn't, you know, on the PC side, so. Darvell Hunt was one of the developers working on The Legend of Matanui for the PC. Well, it was actually a fun game to work on. Uh, we had a great team. We'd come in, um, everybody would sit up on your computer. We had two different buildings. When I started, we were kind of, it was like an old warehouse at a landscaping company. That's kind of funny, but uh, they just set up desks uh, in, the, in the landscaping headquarters, and it was pretty tight in there. After a while, we moved into an official building, and uh, we were all in our cubes, and it was a little bit different in that we couldn't just like see people and talk to each other, but I think it might have helped because it didn't have as many distractions. As development progressed on the first two Bionicle video games, the push to market the unique Lego toy was underway. Christian Faber said the ad team did something unusual for a Lego product. They created a special video to hype the upcoming theme set for internal use only. The idea was to get the sales team excited and on board with the project. We actually did something that was really, really crucial for this whole thing. We did a selling-in video, and the selling-in video was internal. It was filmed and put on VHS, and it was delivered to the different sales uh, uh, people who were, who were pitching this, and they put on the video rolled down the blinds, and when those two or three minutes were over, I think everybody was understanding that this was something that the Lego group had never done before. So it, doing that video was really, um, was I think, the best uh, move ever. And we actually did it because we didn't know how to explain this. This was, this was it, it wouldn't fit in a slideshow. It wouldn't fit in, um, in just a spreadsheet or anything. We needed to have music and sound and dramatic pictures and uh, the right timing in there. So you really get this feel in the stomach instead of in the brain. 
And then there was a narrator, really, really good, good narrator. He also did the first materials for, for the whole scene. And I think his voice and the music we used and uh, all those things just came together to, to something that I had never seen it before. And then I, I knew that the Lego group had probably not seen it as well. So so I think the whole Bionicle thing was, was born there, actually. The feeling of this mystery, sort of a deep story that's not, you know, you have to do a lot of things to sort of get things out in the open and you have to dig into mystery and so on. I think that was actually shaped by that video. Despite the fact that Bionicle launched with so many different elements, Christian said the team working on it was actually very small, something that made him realize just how much a small dedicated team could pull off given the right support. To make sure everything worked well together, Christian found himself flying all over the country to brief different teams. That included a trip to New York to brief the web team about the online game and another to California to meet with DC Comics. It was quite an amazing list of collaborations around Bionicle. This is Christian Faber again. But that started out with that one meeting where we sort of fleshed out what the online game could be because we really wanted this to be sort of a like a episodical thing where you, you went in and then some time would pass and next time you come in, then the next part of the island is, is open. So there's this anticipation and we could have this um, this talk in between where people were, were talking about what it, what it was and so on. So, so the landing on the beach uh, in the beginning of the game and then the whole sort of trip around the island, that was, uh, I think that was really the core of Bionicle. Christian Faber is talking about the Mata Nui online game, an episodic web game that was released and updated regularly on Bionicle.com throughout 2001. It was so popular that after being removed from the website in 2003, it was released as a downloadable game in 2006 for fans. Everyone involved in Lego Bionicle could see almost immediately what a tremendous success it would be, and they were quickly proven right. Alistair Swinnerton said the team was still a bit surprised. We had something very special. I, I think the key moment when I realized it was as huge as it was was when I think Bob was in New York at Christmas, um, which would have been 2001, maybe, uh, or maybe 2002. And there was a massive display of Bionicle in Times Square. Uh, I went, all oh, right, yeah, okay, this is, <laughs> this is big. I think that, that was the moment it really sunk in, quite how big it had got. Bionicle, each set sold separately. You can enter the world of Bionicle, where a hero will be revealed. Trust in the mask, let it be your guide. And an adventure will come to life. Bionicle, Mask of Light, the movie. One of six Bionicle Viserac and the brand new movie, Bionicle 3, Web of Shadows. The intertwined rollout of Bionicle across books, comics, toys, movies, and video games turbocharged sales, making it the top theme for both 2003 and 2006. But those early days weren't without controversy, specifically one sparked by those two first video games. As the two teams at Sapphire worked on the two games, the Bionicle sets were blowing up, quickly becoming a cultural phenomenon. Jeff James said... They knew they were going to have a hot property in the game in part because he saw the figures firsthand working out of the Lego Group's Enfield, Connecticut offices. And as the sales increased, the expectations for the games did as well. You know, early on we saw, you know, just how 
you know, how anticipated it was, how how popular it was being received. So the the pressure and the awareness kind of build up over time. But, you know, I was I was, you know, very excited to be part of it. This is the first as a game producer, these were my first, you know, the two first games I'd ever been a producer of. And um, it was a very exciting time, you know, not only, you know, on the toy side, obviously, where Bionicle had the biggest success, but on the the game side and also on the website as well, on comics and books and, you know, you name it, it was, uh, you know, it was building up to be something special. Both games were already making the rounds while in development. They were even shown off together at the E3 Video Game Expo in the summer of 2001. But then, the LEGO Group was seemingly blindsided by a potential lawsuit. New Zealand-based barrister, Moe Solomon, who was representing three New Zealand Maori tribes, wrote the LEGO Group saying it was inappropriate to use some of the Maori names for toys. Bionicle made use of names like Tohunga, which for the three tribes Moe represented means spiritual healer. He added that the tribes were prepared to allow other Maori names that weren't sacred to be used on a commercial toy. We spoke with Moe Solomon, who lives on Chatham Island in New Zealand, about the issue and how he thinks the Lego group responded. I was uh, legal counsel for the number of Maori tribes who had taken a claim to the Waitangi Tribunal for recognition and protection of their cultural and intellectual property rights. That claim was filed with the Waitangi Tribunal in uh, 1988 and I was representing them from about 1991 onwards. And so we we discovered that the Lego had issued a number of Bionicle toys with Māori names such as Tūpuna and others, and there'd been, you know, no discussion or consultation with with Māori about the use of some of these names, some of which were quite tapu, meaning... um, sacred, and uh, to, to use them on, you know, plastic toys was inappropriate. So the nature of the objection from the Māori tribes to the use of their sacred names is that, one, there'd been no consultation or engagement with them, and to use these names a plastic toy was considered to be culturally inappropriate so same like using Buddha or Muhammad or Jesus or something of that nature. I don't think Lego would be issuing a range of toys using those kind of names. And so for Indigenous peoples, just using names or, or other cultural symbols and icons without permission is not appropriate. So there was cultural offence that had been caused. And so... When I wrote to the company, I explained that this was the nature of the objection, but to engage with my clients, they would be prepared to discuss what other names could be used for any range of of Lego toys that they wanted to issue. So it wasn't just a blanket no, it was there's an appropriate process and protocols that need to be followed. So that's really some of the background to the objection to Lego using those Māori names for these Bionicle toys. The initial response from the Lego group was to say that they weren't doing anything legally wrong and, as Moe Solomon puts it, implying that the toys were actually promoting the Māori language and use of names. My response was to write back 
to Lego and state that whilst there may not be anything legally improper about this misappropriation of cultural names, it was morally and culturally offensive and that Lego is a company which prides itself on having a social conscience and educating the youth of the world. I expected a a more ethical approach to this matter as opposed to receiving a, a letter from the lawyers indicating that they hadn't breached any local or international legal protocol. So I think that second letter struck a chord because I got a a reply fairly smartly from one of the top dogs at Lego based in Denmark. And actually, I just can't recall the gentleman's name, but he was very good to deal with from that point on and even offered to fly out to New Zealand to meet with myself and my clients and look at a way forward. So from that point on, things went more smoothly. News of the Maori objection came as a surprise to those working on Bionicle. Alistair Swinnerton said his initial reaction was disbelief. Um, obviously, we had used not just the Maori language. Uh, we, wanted, we wanted to make the words that we used mean what they were supposed to mean. You know, they were, tahu means fire and so on and so on. Absolutely wanted to respect the languages that we were using. Um, but we didn't, um, well, intentionally misappropriate the various um, cultures. We certainly didn't use any of their actual mythology. We, we invented our own mythology, but just used these names um, in order to give it some sort of um, regional authenticity. Christian Faber said he recalled feeling initially astounded. The whole thing about taking inspiration from uh, the Maori uh, language and so on, that it felt like, it really felt like something that could inspire something new when, when, when we found this whole new language and so on. And it fit totally well with the storyline about the volcanic island uh, that was sort of secluded and the whole sort of um, mythology of uh, these people living on that kind of island was there already. So I guess there was a lot of cross uh, inspiration and also the language and so on. And I think of course, we, we we used the location as our core point. We, we were on a volcanic island in the middle of an ocean with a lot of drama around that, and that was shaping the story, but that had also been shaping the religion of uh, of the Maori people. And we had this big robot lying underneath, which was a story that came out of uh, <laughs> like a brain tumor that I had had many years earlier. But it turned out that in the Maori story, you had these two brothers that created the islands so the coincidence in all those things was just like really mind-boggling. While both Alistar and Christian seemed to be caught off guard at the time, the two also said that they never thought or considered reaching out to the Maori to see if any of those references should be treated in a specific way in Bionicle. We didn't. No, we probably should have done, to be fair. This is Alistair Swinnerton speaking. We were just making up words. We were looking for words. When retrospect, obviously, we should have just made up words that didn't mean anything. But you, you've, <laughs> at the time, Google was a very small thing. You know, there were very few online dictionaries. I, I, I think most of the words I got initially were from a, an actual physical dictionary I bought in foils in London. So obviously a few years later when the internet became a much bigger thing, it would have been much easier. In later releases, uh, a large part of my job was to make sure that the names that we chose didn't mean anything in any language. I think we were very early adopters of the Google whack. 
Meanwhile, the LEGO Group's Brian Sorensen flew to New Zealand to open discussions with Moe Solomon and others from the Maori Group about how to proceed. Moe Solomon said the meetings went well. What we proposed actually was quite constructive, I thought, was to develop a protocol between not just Māori but other Indigenous groups and LEGO and in terms of wanting to use or companies who might want to use Indigenous names to promote their commercial products. And um, we, we talked about developing a protocol and guidelines and codes of conduct and LEGO were very enthusiastic about that. And so we sort of developed an initial draft, but LEGO felt that it was appropriate for toy manufacturing companies also sign up to a similar protocol. But as it turned out, no one else was interested in doing that. So what LEGO agreed to do was entering into a, uh, an international protocol, just decided to cease using those names. And I think they withdrew one of the more sensitive products from the market immediately and then didn't make any more of the other products that they had once they'd sold out. Months later, the LEGO Group publicly announced that it would revisit the game, the theme set, and its inspirations. The company also said it would create a new code of conduct to govern the way it uses folklore in its toys. Specifically, the company said that future launches of Bionicle sets will not incorporate names from any original culture. The LEGO company will seek to develop a code of conduct for cultural expressions of traditional knowledge. To handle the name changes, the LEGO group created an in-fiction holiday for Bionicle called Naming Day, an event that allowed the company to change the name of a number of main characters, places, and people while addressing the change within the fiction of the universe. Well, I mean, obviously, I wasn't involved in the discussions with the, um, the Maoris, and that was that was the Lego group high ups. But yeah, I, I, I was mostly really upset that we to realize that we had upset them. Moe Solomon said that ultimately, the Lego group did the right thing. You know, indigenous peoples worldwide, especially those who have been colonized, even those who haven't, their knowledge, their language their traditional cultural expressions are some of the few things that remain in their possession, having lost, you know, life, land, liberty in some cases. And so, you know, it it would be a good thing if companies around the world, rather than seeing indigenous cultures and traditional cultures like a big grab a bag of, of opportunity, that they took a step back and, and thought, well, look, if we want to use any aspect of that culture to promote the sale of their commercial products, they at least make an effort to contact the cultures concerned, to engage with them, to treat with them ethically and respectfully, and realize that there is an economic value to that knowledge and those cultural expressions because let's face it, they wouldn't be wanting to them if they didn't think there was some economic value. But it's not just around the economic value, it's about what's more important to the knowledge holders is the is the cultural and spiritual value of of those those meheki or those treasures. And so any toy manufacturing company or indeed any company out there, and there's there's a lot of them around the world who, you know, just um, regard Indigenous 
cultures as, as an opportunity and grab and take and misappropriate without any care or concern for the people themselves or their culture. So it's just, a, I suppose it's a plea to make an effort to engage um, with the knowledge holders uh, and the people concerned before you, you take any action of that nature. The decision to not incorporate specific names from the Maori culture had an immediate impact on the mostly complete games. Jeff James explains. Well, I know that for both the PC game and the Game Boy Advance game, you know, obviously the biggest and the most immediate change was some of the terms that we used in the game. You know, some of the uh, the characters in the game, if I recall, were called Tohunga, but we actually changed those to Matoran to be respectful of the culture, you know, after that uh, controversy had arisen. And I know that most of the changes were related to text changes. And as far as development itself, I can't recall that, you know, that particular issue caused too much of a development, you know, change or headache beyond you know, just thoroughly going through and editing scripts and making sure that we um, removed the terms that we needed to. That was probably the biggest, was mainly on the text side. The first of the two games, Lego Bionicle Tales of the Tohunga, was renamed to Lego Bionicle Quest for the Toa and released globally on October 2nd, 2001. But the story-ending sequel due out for Windows PC was canceled. The decision to kill the game, which was set for a December release, came as a big surprise to everyone involved. Even externally, it seemed quite sudden, in part due to the extensive marketing the game received. The release date had been announced in a Bionicle comic, and a cutscene for the game was packaged on a CD-ROM disc and put in boxes of Cheerios. There was even a call for public beta testers. Darvell Hunt, who had been working on the game for months, said things at the studio weren't going well in the lead-up to the cancellation. Well, we were behind the whole time, uh, not really that far, but uh, starting probably around March of 2001, just coming into summer, March or April, the team had been asked to come in evenings and work. So we were working probably 70-hour work weeks all that summer. Um, they would cater food and uh, we'd, we'd have dinner there. We would be working tw- at least 12-hour days, sometimes more. Um, and I did know that they were having some financial difficulties. We were actually a little bit behind in payroll as well. So it was a high-stress time, 70-hour work weeks, and and some points no pay for a couple weeks. So it was definitely a stressful time. By that fall, Game Studio Sapphire started giving physical paychecks to its employees, telling them when it was okay to cash them. And eventually, Darvell said, the company stopped paying employees altogether. Then on October 10th, a bit more than a week after the release of the first Bionicle game, Darvel came into work and was told that the studio was letting some people go. By this point, Darvel and his co-workers hadn't been paid in more than a month. And I heard from my lead, I believe it was, that uh, they were letting some people go. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really weird. I wonder why. We were just kind of joking about it and, and just kind of, you know, just having a conversation about trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, I think it was my Leeds boss came to me and uh, he said he wanted to talk to me. So at that point, I knew something was up and he says, I said something like, oh, I guess I'm one of them and kind of laughed at it. And the, and the, the friends I had there, I guess they kind of forced a laugh, but I, I don't think they thought it was very funny as I didn't. So uh, they just walked me into a room and said that the game had been canceled 
and that they had to let go a lot of people, and I had been hired for the Bionicle game. So at that point, uh, they just didn't have the funds to keep me on board. So that was my last day. To this day, Darvell isn't sure why the game was shut down, but he's heard plenty of rumors, including blaming a shift in management at the Lego Group, the fact that in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the Lego Group didn't have the stomach for a game featuring any violence. He also believes Sapphire's financial struggles, the company would eventually shut down in 2007, played a significant role. Jeff James said he believes it was mostly due to some significant shifts at the LEGO Group, specifically at LEGO Media International. Around that time, LMI was renamed LEGO Software, and new people were brought in to reassess and run things. Among them was Tom Stone, who in just a couple of years would leave the LEGO Group and lead the creation of LEGO Star Wars with Traveler's Tales. When he had joined the company, started assessing games. This is Jeff James speaking. And kind of looking at you know, what games are in development. And I recall that that he had come out to Sapphire. I believe this was after 9-11. So I remember, distinctly remember, uh, you know, empty airports and, you know, meeting with Tom to fly out to see Sapphire where he could get a look at the game and take a look at its current status. And um, I know that we had done some kid testing. You know, Tom was keen on focusing the game on young gamers and making sure they had a quality experience. So, you know, we spent a day or two at Sapphire. I think we had done some testing with kids. You know, after that, I guess it was, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was a few weeks after that is when the decision was made to, to cancel the game. But, you know, from my perspective, the single biggest reason was, you know, we were under a very aggressive time frame for for development. And, you know, everyone I work with Sapphire was, you know, they're just a great group of guys and they really did amazing work. When you look at the the time we had and the amount of work that needed to be done and the amount of the polish that needed to be done, you know, that was one aspect. The other aspect is I know we had some issues with uh, 3D card compatibility. And this is another area where I think we were kind of pushing the envelope and if you go back in time, you know, to 2001 or so, you know, not many people had a PC with a, with a decent 3D graphics card. And so, you know, I can also categorically say that, you know, at least from my experience, it had nothing to do with 9-11. It had nothing to do with the changes we had to make, you know, related to the Maori controversy. It was pretty much, you know, what I just mentioned. So at least what I recall. I reached out to Tom Stone about the game and its cancellation to see if he could recall what happened. From his recollection, the game's cancellation was driven by a number of issues. The game was originally designed to be a type of first-person shooter, but that would have given it 18 rating, something that the LEGO group wasn't comfortable with. So the decision was made to change the camera from first-person to third-person. That change, as Tom puts it, and I quote him here, really spoiled the game experience. The Bionicle FPS would have sold millions as it's exactly what the young gamers wanted. Instead, the game was canceled. Jeff James calls the cancellation heartbreaking. You know, we all desperately wanted this to work and, and you know, Sapphire worked really hard and I know, you know, I'm not as privy to the kind of went, went on at Sapphire internally, you know, obviously, but... You know, I know the team there and the company there was under a lot of stress, but, you know, in my experience, um, you know, everyone there was great to work with. They worked really, really hard, and it was, um, you know, just disappointing for everyone involved that that it turned out the way it did. So, you know, there was some discussion about, you know, yes, we've, 
we've promoted this game really heavily. Um, you know, fans are going to be disappointed, but you know, one thing about Lego that's always attracted me to the company is that it absolutely does place a really high importance on quality experience for kids. And, and in this case, you know, that's ultimately what it boiled down to. It was Darvell Hunt's first professional video game, and he was deeply saddened by the cancellation, perhaps even more than being laid off. I was really disappointed because I knew that I'd been working for a whole year and I would never get my name uh, in the credits, and I would never get to play that, and I'd never get to show my kids or relatives and say, this is the game I worked on, how cool is this? I think it was the first time I'd ever been laid off, and I called my wife, and we chatted with it, and she started crying the phone because she didn't know what we were going to do. And it's like, I was not crying myself. It was kind of a shock to me, but I just figured, well, we'll have to figure out what to do, find another job, it won't be that big of a deal. As it turns out, it was over a year before I found a new job. Uh, so it was a fairly stressful time. But uh, right then, I was just concerned about figuring out how to, how to get home and support my wife and just kind of get through the beginnings of it. While the Bionicle theme set had a tremendous run that included about 70 books, more than 50 comics and graphic novels, seven released video games, four films, a television show, a trading card game, and countless other toys, it eventually wrapped up in 2010. We reveal the big secret. This is Christian Faber again. And then we just leave it there, and people would be like, whoa, they would start to tell their own stories about what this was and why and who and where and so on. So we felt it was a perfect story to kick off sort of the Lego build afterwards because people would, would have all those bricks and they would be able to tell their, their own adventures from there on. Yeah, and then we had to restart with the, with the desert story and re, rebirth of, uh, of the legend and so on on another planet. And it started already there to sort of say, well, now we are repeating ourselves in some way. And it was also the market that asked for the same thing again and again. So suddenly going from the position where we were surprising the market, then they started to ask us for stuff, which is, I think, not a good thing when you're not at the head of the ideas. <laughs> but then, just five years later, in 2015, the LEGO group decided it wanted to try and bring Bionicle back as a reboot of the original story. Christian Faber said he was originally involved in the reboot but that things just didn't work out. I started out doing some of the concept work and so on and ideas for how the logo should look. But it really became clear that what I saw as possibility to continue this in a good way for you know trying to tell the story that the fans would love didn't fit with the product tensions where you know the whole idea about having continuous launches of products that are continuously changing and you continuously have to tell new stories about every character for me, it was like, let's be much more specific and focused on one character or one arc or something in this next part. And I think there was just a general feeling that this is going to be one big battle if we don't sort of cut corners or, or really cut the chase here. So I was, um, I pulled myself out. Let's say that I stopped. Actually, I, right after that, I stopped uh, at advance because of a lot of different things when it came to creative freedom and so on. Yeah. While the first generation of Bionicle toys had been discontinued for about a decade, and the second generation for half that, 
fans of the toys continue to thrive, gathering online in a multitude of fan sites. Among them is a group that tracks down lost bits of lore, toys, and even managed to breathe new life into the once forever lost canceled Lego game, Bionicle, The Legend of the Matanui. I am Fakiti. I am the founder of Lightstone Studios and the, I guess, the producer of The Legend of Matanui Rebuilt right now. My initial association was just with Biomedia Project, but now I also run Mask of Destiny and all that's currently entailing. <laughs> this is Liam Scott, a Bionicle superfan who became obsessed with the toys at nine when he first saw an ad inside an issue of Lego magazine. He said he was drawn to the toys by the story and the inherent mystery. While he played with the Bionicle web games quite a bit, he didn't really get into video games until about 2008, well after Matanui failed to launch. His entry point into that lost video game came through an introduction to the adult fan of LEGO website, Biomedia Project. Like, I was well into Bionicle and all of its digital media before that point, but it wasn't until I joined Biomedia Project that I really started hankering down and working on, you know, various community projects. The Biomedia Project is essentially a massive archive of all kinds of Bionicle media from comics, movies, video games, etc. Uh, one of the most recent acquisitions, actually, was the partial source code for the GBA game Matoran Adventures. Pretty soon after joining the group, Liam found himself falling down the rabbit hole of LEGO Bionicle The Legend of Matanui. And what was, in 2001, simply a game that was never released over the ensuing decade became a sort of holy grail for the fans of Bionicle, an enduring mystery that needed to be solved. I guess I was always sort of interested in finding out more just because of the whole mystery of the series, but it wasn't until it ended in 2010, I think, that the efforts really started to begin to collect everything that there was in the interest of, you know, bringing it forward to potential future fans. Like, I've lost count now of how many times I've referenced Biomedia Project or Wall of History, Biological Chronicle, if I want to get somebody who's completely unaware of Bionicle into the series, and I can just send them these links. For Liam, the mystery was made all the more enticing by his own experiences playing Lego Bionicle Quest for the Toa. When he got to the end of that game, he found not a story neatly wrapped up, but a cliffhanger meant to be resolved in the unreleased sequel. Though the main story threads were resolved in Matanui Online Game, the unresolved ending and the knowledge that the game was apparently mostly finished when it was canceled was just too enticing to forget about. Legend of Matanui was essentially the holy grail of lost media. Everyone wanted to know more about it. Everyone wanted a copy. The developers, from what I gather, were harassed by people like every other day to some, at some points. Yeah, it was just something that everyone wanted and didn't really think would ever actually come out. While the desire to see the game was there, it seemed unlikely that the game would ever be released. The game was canceled in 2001, the team who worked on it laid off, and the company later shut down. Then the seemingly impossible happened. One day, in 2018, someone at the Biomedia Project received an anonymous email with a link. Inside, an early version of the incomplete game and a single sentence. Here you go. Have fun. 
It was one of those things where it was dropped into our laps with, you know, no kind of searching or anything. It wasn't until after that that we were producing that video for Liam Robertson and uh, Did You Know Gaming, that he was doing a lot of behind-the-scenes research and ended up getting in contact with Darvell Hunt, who happened to have a copy of the final build still available in his archives and passed that on to us. And I guess that considering everything that had gone before and how many people have been like, hey, I have this thing, and then they'd vanish off the face of the earth, or it would just be like a Rickroll or something, I didn't really believe that it would be anything. And then finding out that not only it was, but it was a previously never-before-seen build of the game with content that would be cut even from the builds that we did know that were also cancelled was very interesting and ended up being the catalyst for why Rebuilt exists today. Armed now with two early builds of the game, an alpha and a beta, the fans set to work deciphering what they had and what to do with it. One build was from July 2001 and seemed to be from a time when the gameplay and the script were in the middle of a complete overhaul. Uh, I mean, aside from being a lot less finished than the final build, it was a lot, a lot less linear in progression, but most notably, the dialogue and the character interactions were a lot more in-depth, and it used a lot of words like Tohunga, which were completely scrubbed from the final build. The final build, which most people know as the beta, this was from October 2001, which was, um, I believe, the last build of the code made by the developers before Sapphire was shut down. The intent had always been there just due to our nature at Biomedia Project of just like, if something is broken and we want people to be able to play it nicely, we work on fixing it. So we had already been in the process of doing that with the alpha for a couple of months when we got a hold of the beta, because there was about a two, three month period between the two builds being acquired while Liam was working on that video, the other Liam. <laughs> and, um,. I guess it wasn't until we got a hold of the beta and realized how much had changed, some of it not necessarily for the better in our eyes, that we thought, why don't we just use the tools that we've created so far to take the best parts of these two builds and make them into a completely new one? So in short order, the Biomedia project went from having nothing from that legendary Lost game to having an alpha build and a beta build. The team put time into fixing up the alpha and beta builds of the game to make them playable and share with fans. That meant fixing bugs and doing some quality of life refinements. The real focus today, though, is on a version called Rebuilt, which combines the best elements of the alpha and the beta, and then layers in some new features. Rebuild is in development now by Lightstone Studio, which is run by Liam Scott. He said he formed the studio while trying to get the word out about the project on his YouTube channel, The Beaver House. Once word spread of the project, the Discord channel for the site jumped from 30 users to 900. So from that primordial soup of hundreds upon hundreds of people, some of the more talented individuals from places like uh, Rock Raiders United 
came on board and decided to start brainstorming with others on, you know, how we can reverse engineer this build of the game and see what we can actually do with it. And from there, you know, our little team was formed, which was initially just, you know, another subset of the Beaver House, but eventually did get a name as Lightstone, splitting from the Beaver House server last year, and now we have our own, and that's where things stand right now. Among the major issues the team faces in creating Rebuild is a missing ending to the game. Neither the Alpha nor the Beta currently have a final boss fight, something that Liam says was clearly intended. Well, the ultimate goal for the game is to just finish as much of it as we possibly can. I would like to include the Makuta boss fight in that, but it's hard to say how long that's going to take, especially with the pandemic and how long, how much that is, you know, hurt morale sometimes. But um, as far as the studio goes, I would like to make original games after we're done with this. And we do have some that I can't really talk about on the uh, idea board. But other than that, it's kind of up in the air at the moment, really. Liam Scott and Lightstone Studios aren't the only people giving modern fans of Bionicle something to look forward to. Bionicle, Quest for Matanui, not to be confused with the never-released Lego Bionicle The Legend of the Matanui, is a fan-created game in development by Craney Creations. The open-world action role-playing mod of StarCraft II is meant to retell the original story of Bionicle. The first trailer for the game hit in 2020, wowing fans of the franchise and gamers alike. Subsequent videos shows a beautifully crafted game played from a third-person perspective with a deep level of Bionicle aesthetic. LEGO Games has been speaking with Craney Creations about the title and say they see it as an exciting opportunity to add new ways to engage with the LEGO brick. Born of a desire to create its own sort of Star Wars, LEGO Bionicle went on to become a huge success. And that was in large part thanks to the interactive nature of how the toys were rolled out and the story that was explored, said Christian Faber. I'm thinking of this as my first really big story world-building project. And I've tried to do world-building afterwards for different projects and so on. And I think... You have to think of all the different parts of this as bricks in a puzzle. Uh, some are big, some are small, but there is a lot of air in between them for your own storytelling as a fan. And of course, a game tends to be its own media almost that contains the whole thing. It's almost like a game you're entering when you're entering the product because you have to figure out what fits there and how do I tell this story. So the whole campaign was a game. And then the game inside the game... <laughs> I always feel that, you know, the people who really understood Bionicle were almost taking the journey <laughs> alongside the Toa inside this world, which was something you had to investigate. You had to figure things out. It's almost like a puzzle game. And then you have this flex between action and construction, action construction, which is actually, it's a Lego group term, which is called flow, where you are in a constant positive move creative move from constructing something and then throwing it into uh, action, seeing how it works and learning stuff and then going back into construction. And I think Bionicle is so perfect for this because you might discover something when you're playing with it or you might discover that you don't want to play, you just want to build. And, you know, this toy 
doesn't limit you in any way. You can have uh, almost big battles with the epic scale uh, sort of morale uh, and good versus evil. We created a world that they could inhabit as children. Here, Alistair Swinnerton speaking. We did create a universe with huge levels of backstory for the different characters that just resonated in the same way as Star Wars and, and currently the likes of Marvel and DC. It's the level of complexity, I think, that we invested into it that made it cool for them and continues to be. And there's still, I regularly get people messaging me on Twitter or emailing or whatever, asking about very minute details of, of things that I may or may not have written 20 years ago. I think we just got the formula right, as simple as that. We achieved what we set out to achieve. We created something like Star Wars and like Pokemon that wasn't either of them and appealed to the imagination of the audience in the same way. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescente and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescente. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Mango Lindinger and Andreas Holzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Disclaimer voice is Ben Ungren. Openings child voice is Milo Vincent. Music by Peter Primer, foundermusic.com, excerpts from various Bionicle video games, and Enlig Lindstrand from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade, Windows PC, and Nintendo Switch. We'd like to thank our participants, Christian Faber, Darvell Hunt, Jeff James, Liam Scott, Moe Solomon, and Alistair Swinnerton. We'd also like to thank the entire LEGO Games team. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricksatlego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Bits and Bricks.